in Second Thessalonians um, chapter one today, and I think it's important uh, every time we begin a new book to just remind you that um, Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. It's his second uh, letter that is in Scripture uh, that he has sent to them, and it's one that will hopefully build us up and strengthen us in the faith as we study it. So if you would just bow with me. And uh, we will begin our study. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. That you do not hide your will from us. That you do not keep us in the dark. We thank you that you've spoken to us. Lord, we ask that you'd never let us grow weary in our study of your word. But we pray that you would increase our desire to know you. Increase our love for you. Increase our love for one another as we learn from you and learn from your word. We pray that we'd leave here worshiping and honoring the one who will return for us. Lord, I pray that as a church body that we would constantly keep before us the end when Christ returns. So when we meet our Lord that we'll be ready and prepared and longing for that day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we are looking at this, just thinking about these two books together, one of the things that you um, know if you've studied it much is that there, there are some uh, things that re- are repeated in this text uh, from First and Second Thessalonians that kind of come together. Uh, one person entitled these two books, if you were to study them together, as Standing Firm in These Last Days. And I think that's something that's kind of helpful. You say, uh, we are living, Paul was keeping before them, before their eyes, the end. And so living in light of the end, how do we stand firm? I mean, that's really a big question for us. And so he emphasizes that it's something that we should focus on. Now, this uh, emphasis today is on the revelation of Christ, the return of Christ. Certainly that's kind of, we're going to look at the whole chapter of Second Thessalonians. And so that is there and we need to see that there's, uh, Jesus is going to return. He's going to rescue his people and he is going to um, judge those who have opposed him and his people and his kingdom. And so we understand that to be true. And so Paul is kind of helping them uh, because they are going through sorrow and suffering. I mean, that's just the reality. Their lives were spent uh, struggling. And sometimes we say, well, that's common to all of humanity. And it is. Everyone suffers and struggles at some level in this life. It's, you're not going to escape it. I mean, you're just gonna, it's just coming. Trouble is coming. You live in a fallen world. Sin is prevalent. Sin permeates this world. And, and it, it, you're going to face suffering and struggle. But there, in a very specific way, uh, the church, and th- you need to, we need to think of it this way. He mentions the aspect of the kingdom but the church is in hostile territory. If you were to stop and say, we are, if you were to really think about it, you realize you are in a war. And you are living, again, in hostile territory. You are not living on the side where everything is at peace and you're just watching the war from a distance. You are behind enemy lines. And you are there with very clear instructions of standing firm for the Lord and reaching out to those who are in darkness. And you're doing so in a way that is uh, that is going to be if if the world really sees that and it's on display, trouble will come. You're, you're not we're not living really in a time of peace. 
We are living in a time of war. Now, the weird thing is, is that the war is not always very clear to us. So we don't always see it because it is a, it's almost it's a secret battle at some level. So that a lot of people don't even know that there is a heavenly realm and there, there's a battle in the heavenlies and that there's this battle going on and there's a spiritual battle and they can't see your armor. And so when you get up in the morning and say, I'm going to put on the full armor of God, nobody sees that. They don't understand that. And it's not a battle where you're saying, I'm pulling out weapons and so I've been kind of warming up with my 50 cal and I'm going to fight them and beat them down today. You're not doing that. Because it's a spiritual battle. You're putting on spiritual armor. And, and, and the deal is, is that's why I think sometimes even among believers, you know, they're, they're kind of like, they're not even aware of it. It's something that's very easy to just kind of get sucked in and you're living your life and you're not even aware that you're in a battle. You don't see the battle for your family. You don't see the battle for your children. You don't see the battle for your neighbor. You don't see the battle. But there's a real battle, and these people happen to live in a time where it was clear. And that, that's something I think is difficult for us, is because it, it's kind of like uh, what we say, that, that some people would say, like, uh, when, when we're trying to fight battles now with, um, let's say, Al-Qaeda or something, it, there's, it's not like people go out on a battlefield and everybody's standing there, and you're looking at the enemy, the enemy's looking at you, and you walk in like a revolutionary war style, and you step up there, you pull the gun, you fire couple of people fall, you're still standing, you reload, and you shoot again. It's not that way. It's hidden. And so I, I guess I just want you to think about that. You have to know that you are in a battle. And for us, sometimes because of the nature of it, it it's hard to see it. For them, they knew they were in hostile territory because people within their own church, like Jason in Acts, was drug out and, and, and beat on by the people. And we don't see that. So I could be getting beat up spiritually, I mean beat up spiritually, left for dead spiritually kind of thing, and nobody would know it necessarily. You see the tension there, the battle? It, 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 that's why you got to, re- I mean, that is why you need to be sharpened constantly in the word with believers striving together. That is why you have to fight together because sometimes you have to have some people saying, do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see the enemy? Do you see him? Are you sure you see that? Do you see the struggle in your own heart? Are you blind to what's going on? Do you understand what's going on? You need people around you that help you see it. And I think it's very important that we understand that. Now, when we're looking at this, this morning, we are trying, what we try to do in this world is reflect the character of our king. We want to reflect his character. And we want to reach out to those in darkness. And you and I will face great trouble in the midst of that. We are looking for Jesus' return. And in the meantime, we're wanting to grow in faith and in love for one another. So that God is glorified with our lives. That's our goal. So, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a common greeting. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there just to say Paul is the principal author. I guess you would say the other guys are involved. They're ministering among the church. He speaks to this church. He calls them to the church. 
Now, here's the thing. Some people would say, and this is always just, I thought about this when uh, we were, we were uh, Mike was reading just a while ago. When he's reading that text, I'm thinking there were individual churches. There were individual churches that were gathered together doing the will of God where God placed them. Some people get this idea that, well, you know, the organized church, people gathering together as a body is not as very important because the church is universal and I can be a Christian out there just being the church. But the reality is in the New Testament model, there were a gathered people that were trying to do the will of God together, seeking to do that. And Paul would go to individual churches and then he would write to people or speak of them like this church and say, hey, check this out. This church is walking in faith. They're growing in faith. He's speaking about an individual church saying to other individual churches, listen to what's going on here. So it's very important. It is to the church that is gathered together in Thessalonica and they are gathering regularly together and they are doing so because they are united to the Father and the Son. You see this God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, both God. We say one God in three persons. We see two persons of the Trinity here. They are both God. They are equal in power and glory. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we could look at a couple of things here. One, grace was something a Greek person would identify with that term. Peace is something that a Jewish person would identify with. We say the church is made up of both Jew and Gentile. They were united together. But also, some people would say this. Grace is the means by which we come to, to, to a knowledge of God or to a relationship with God. Peace is the result. We were enemies of God. Now we're united together with God. And so, Paul begins this, encourages them in this truth. He's going to continue to do so. Verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and your love for every one of you, or I'm sorry, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. Now, I want you to see something. So hold your place there. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Just kind of pop back there real quick. And he says there, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It looks similar. It looks similar. It's something... He kind of repeats himself at some level and has a different emphasis. So I just say there's the similarities. You see faith, love, and hope in both of these. We'll talk about how you see hope, but I think it's important to see. But there's also differences here. In 1 Thessalonians, he says we give thanks. In 2 Thessalonians, he says we ought to give thanks. There's a sense in 2 Thessalonians of obligation there. We should be thankful for what God is doing within His church. There should be a sense in which you feel an obligation to, to thank God for His people. You feel an obligation. That's kind of like Paul says, I am under obligation to speak the gospel, he senses a, feel, a, a, a duty to do so. 
He does it no doubt with joy, but he does, he feels a duty to look at the church and to see things. When we see Paul, even in the church in Corinth that he thought really had problems, you look at it and say, whoa, they really do. He would still use ways to thank God for them, to encourage them in different ways. I think it's important that we just say that there is an obligation and we live in a culture that is so unthankful. It's it's astonishing how, how discontent we can be. This is a culture that breeds discontentment. And we think it's okay. But Thanksgiving is something that is a, a, a thing that within the Christian's life that he needs to be looking for ways to be, to be overflowing with Thanksgiving towards God. And you kind of say, well, what is Paul thankful for? As he's looking at these things, he's going on, he says, he thanks God for their, their faith and their love. We see that now. In First Thessalonians, he says, "Your work that produce the, the work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, or sorry, your, your yeah, your labor uh, prompted by love, or in your endurance inspired by hope." This passage says, "Your faith is growing more and more, and the love of each one of you has for one another is increasing." The the first one is like the productive nature; it's like work of faith. Here it's the progressive nature. It's, it's growing. It's growing. I see your faith growing. I see you moving forward in faith. Both of those to be very encouraging to them. The, the, this growing faith is kind of an organic thing like a tree that's kind of growing up and, and expanding. That's kind of the idea. The other one is, is more of like a, a water flooding a field. It kind of begins to move out and take over the love increasing. All of those things saying, I see this going on in your life. Now, the third virtue of hope is not specific here, but you'll look in Second Thessalonians and you'll see him say, you're steadfast in your persecutions and afflictions. They're holding on, they're holding the line, they're pressing on in the midst of suffering. They're hoping in the Christ to save them or rescue them. Now, what does it mean for your faith and love to kind of be growing? Sometimes people say faith. You ever heard some, I mean, maybe you've heard people say it like this. Um, They'll speak of it almost like um, it's not something they were born with. Like if you have some like athletic ability, maybe uh, you're just kind of, some people just naturally, you give them a ball, like they can play ball, they can do this, they can do, I mean, they, I mean, you hang out with some people and it's like, I used to have a buddy, like I could go out there and like water ski back in the old days, like you could slalom and, and uh, I could do that. And then they started getting up and people started using other uh, things. But, but I mean, this guy could like, it could be his first time and he would like blow me out of the water I and mean, just like. The first time he would be better. Or you might meet somebody, um, for instance, like intellectually, they're just they just learn stuff. And so you sit there, I could be studying like, for instance, in Christianity uh, or learning in the church uh, as far as seminary. You study Greek and like some guy coming there and he's like blowing through the Greek language like you just couldn't believe it. Sometimes we say, you know, those kind of people, like when we talk about that, uh, we can treat faith that way. And so you could say something like, I wish I had such and such as faith or so and so's faith. Over there, I wish I really had their faith. If I had their faith, then man, I'd be good. It's almost like, hey, God just gives some people like great faith and other people just kind of left out. Sometimes you could look at it and think of it in times, uh, you know, at times like something you could lose. Like you lose your remote, like we do that a lot. It'll fall down into the 
couch or whatever and you can't find it and I'm feverishly looking for the remote and I'm like where is it you know we think oh I lost my faith people struggle with all kinds of stuff like that we think oh I can lose it I wish I had this but faith is a relationship of trust in God it is living dynamic and growing Jesus even spoke of degrees of faith if you have the faith of a mustard seed he would say Faith and love are like virtues that God gives his people. So you have to say, I can grow in faith. I can grow in love. It's something God's given me. And so then I'm trying to help cultivate that. They were talking in one of the discussion groups about what it means to cultivate that. How do you cultivate faith? How are you going to cultivate your faith and help it grow? It, it takes time. Have you ever tried to do something really well? You say, I want to get better. I want to get better at this. I want to get better at playing basketball. I want to be a better baseball player. I want to learn how to read better. All of those things are not just you sitting there hoping that's going to happen. You are striving to get better in those things. Sometimes I think people think that Christian life is something you don't have to work hard at those things. It requires a lot of work. If you want to know God, rigorous study of who God is. God has spoken. He has spoken to reveal who He is. I want to learn about God. I will study what he said. You see? If he says that they were growing in love for one, they say, I want to grow in my love for Christians. Well, what's that going to take? I'm going to have to spend time with them. And then they're going to have to make me really mad. And then I'm going to have to strive to love them. It's one of those things where you are it's 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 something that and again God is working that in us but at the same time we're striving to do that so sometimes I don't know you just kind of have to really think about that that's one of the things in this church I see oftentimes there are people that are that are I've seen them grow in faith but it's not without effort and they they or they grow in love for others and and you watch them like giving their life in service to others and then they grow and they get to know somebody better and they grow and they get to see things and they grow and it's just moving forward so i would just say we 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 should strive for that what does it mean to love see and that's a beautiful thing and and it, it, it the scripture says love is patient and kind Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable and resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Sometimes I think with a lack of love, is, it's, really, it's really easy to say I love somebody. It's another thing to, to really genuinely love them. Give my life in service to them in the difficulties. You know, sometimes we lack love for somebody because we want to protect ourselves. So if a parent says, I really love my child and so I'm not going to discipline my child, it's a way of preserving myself. I love myself more. I would rather my child be a fool. 
and me just be okay. I feel better. I feel better when my kid acts foolish and I don't have to discipline them. It's a lack of love for them, right? Something to think about. Okay, so we are just thinking through this and we're seeing this growing faith and this growing love. And it's a beautiful thing But we see even going on within our church. And I think it is an awesome thing. I see people pursuing that and loving them. And I, I know a lot of people have told me over the years since we've started this, that they, they're just, they're, they have, they've grown in, in, in leaps and bounds in faith and in love for others. It's just part of one of the beautiful things that God's done here. And so I commend you in that. Uh, you keep going here, and I think it's interesting. This is kind of hard for me when I first read it. And you look back at that text, and it says, uh, he says, uh, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. Uh, I always, my dad always taught me boasting was bad. Somebody's really arrogant and boasting about what they've done and all that kind of stuff, telling you about all the time. That's a bad thing. You think, man, that's crazy. What are they doing? Why do they boast? Sometimes you meet somebody and they tell you about how great, they give an example of how great they were in high school and they tell you about how awesome they were in sports or what they did at school and all this kind of stuff. You hear someone promoting themselves. That's the idea. It's promote promotion of oneself. I'm going to make somebody think I'm great. So in society, they talk about who they know. In travel, you can talk about where you've been on vacation. In possessions, you could talk about what you own. My vehicles, my home, my SUVs, my boats, my all those kinds of things. In work, you could talk about how much you've done, what you've created, what you've built, how high you've climbed, whatever. You see people boasting all the time. With their kids, you could be like, oh, they scored this on a test. Uh, this is where they're going to college. Aren't they awesome? And they, you know, People use all different means. In the church, you could say, uh, this would not be a Sunday where I'd say this is how many people we had this Sunday. But we, we could like you could do that kind of stuff or how much money you raised or what, how big your buildings are. How many kids went to camp this year or how many we baptized all those things. People use all these different methods to kind of try to boast and think, is that good? Paul's boasting, man. Is that crazy? Why would he be boasting? But there isn't a boasting where where Paul's just said, I'm thanking God for them. When you say, I thank God for what he's for them, he's saying, I'm thanking God for what he's doing in you so that he can go and boast about them and say, look at these things God is doing. Now, the things that he's boasting about are not just temporal things. They're eternal things. Their faith is increasing. Their love for one another is growing. And he's saying, hey, churches, look at what's going on over there in Thessalonica. It was given not to build somebody up, like individuals up, but so that it would stir the hearts of others to say, let us love each other more. Let us keep pressing on in the midst of suffering and difficulty. Let us run this race. Paul understood that he was thanking God for what he was doing. And then when he speaks to other churches and he says, look at what God's doing. Look at the picture on display in the life of that church. Y'all press on. It's a beautiful thing to see that take place. And I think we have to be careful, man. I, I really do. I think we have to look at... In our own hearts, whether we're talking about our church or whether we're talking about things that we've done or whatever, that we do not we do not have a hint of building ourselves up for our own glory. Boy, it is a it's a dangerous place to be. We should be boasting in what the Lord is doing. 
we should use it as a means to encourage others. There, there are people that have told me stories of, how, of God's faithfulness as He interacted with them and empowered them that were so edifying. So, they so built me up. If you've ever read like a, a biography of a Christian who's walked with the Lord, you say, that biography has a way, it's telling their story. And it's telling sometimes some of the greatest things you'd ever heard. Some of the greatest pictures of faith. But it's not for their own glory. It's for the glory of God. And it's for the benefit of His people. So Paul thanks God for them. Now he moves into defending really uh, God's justice. Now we're going to look at that. But you're going to see... Some might have said, how could a just God allow these horrible things to happen to these people? So these people are growing in faith and in love, and they're getting their tails kicked. Do you see that? They're growing in faith and love. They're walking faithfully with the Lord. I mean, sometimes you hear people say, well, if you just are faithful to God, it's going to all be good. And they're getting their tails kicked. They're, they're not, their lives are not getting easier their suffering is 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 greater. It's almost like God's like the the more faithful this group is, the hotter the fire's going to be. Is that shocking to you? Y'all ever whew. walk in faithfulness to God? The more intense, because He uses His servants to display His glorious purposes, and so He's going. Paul's going to defend what God is doing with them. He says in verse 5, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. What is it that, God's, uh, that shows God's judgment is right? In this text, what is it that shows God's judgment is right when He's working in the lives of these people? Is it the fact that they are suffering or is it the perseverance in the midst of it? Or maybe is it both? I think I think it probably is both. Jesus taught that suffering was the unavoidable path to glory for him and his people. Without the cross, there's no crown. If 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 there's not any shame, there there's no glory to follow. It is the way. It's the way that God orchestrated it and designed it. Jesus taught that. Right after Paul had been stoned, and listen to this, right after Paul had been stoned and left for dead in Acts 14, he told the people of that region that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's just, it's part of it. Paul told to Timothy, he said to Timothy, that suffering is the will of God for you. Peter and John, after they had been beaten... In Acts 5.41 said, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They, 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 they reveled in that. They rejoiced in that, that they were able to be counted worthy to suffer. So there is an aspect here of, of that, that where you're just saying, look, suffering's a part of being a Christian in this age. 
He's showing his righteous judgment by doing that. That's the plan. That's the design. But also he's going to show that in a way that with by saying, look at the unflinching attitude on the part of these people as they endure amidst all kinds of trouble. Look at their attitude towards it. They keep standing firm. We see here that God gives his people courage in the face of opposition. And it shows that he is a righteous God. That he gives them courage. They are not to doubt God's generosity towards them. God was declaring them fit for his kingdom. He was declaring them fit to be able to be a part of his kingdom. He's saying this is the way it looks like. These are kingdom people. I'm going to put on display for you what it looks like when someone is is truly one of my children. How they bear up under suffering. He's proud of that. He's putting it on display and saying, this is what it looks like when someone has been transformed within and changed. This is how they live and this is how they'll walk. Is that shocking? Does that sound like a seeker-friendly Christianity? Come here. Here's the cotton candy and the fun. Play your, you know, just play all day. Play, play, play. Enjoy life. It's all fun and easy. Christianity's about getting it all now, bro. It's a lie. It's a lie. And when if a church does that over time, people will think that God is about just pacifying his people. He's just about pacifying them all the time. It's counter, counter a biblical Christianity. Hebrews 11 is a catalog of those who've demonstrated great faith in the, in the face of daunting challenges. And he calls them at the end of Hebrews 11. This is what he says about them. They are men of whom this world is not worthy That's who they are. They are shown to be fit for the world to come. Not this world. They are not of this world. They are counter this world. These men are facing great daunting challenges. And in the face of that, by faith, they're walking forward. You see that? Paul's saying God loves to put on display his righteous judgment, his wisdom, as he displays his people before a watching world. And they walk faithfully. Listen, in this culture, the most difficult thing, it, it's not that you and I are going to be drug out in the streets and beat to death, at least at this point. Standing firm in this culture requires... An amazing amount of wisdom to be able to say, I'm going to choose the greater things for the lesser things. And I was talking to Clint beforehand about this. It's like sometimes the more resources we have at our disposal, the more ways that we can entertain ourselves allows us to kind of forget What is the most important things in this culture? It's not again, you're not going to be beat to death. It's you're going to be slowly 
turned away from the things of God by the enticing things of this world. And you may not even know it. Because in the church, it's so easy to never really see those things because there are, you kind of have blinders on and people around you, everybody's just kind of moving down this interstate of foolishness and, and, and living for this age. And you're, you're saying, I don't understand. I can't see what, what's, how am I supposed to really live? And sometimes it's hard to get a clear picture in this world. And I think it's very important that we stop and evaluate over and over and over. What am I living my life for? Verses six and seven. Because God is just, he will vindicate his people publicly one day. He will reverse the fortunes of both of these groups here. The persecutors and the persecuted when Christ comes. Look at verse 6 and 7. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So in God's righteous judgment, he allows us to be afflicted and gives us the grace to bear up under it. But at, at, at the right time, At the perfect time, as we face these great trials, we'll come to a day where God will reverse it all. That's so crazy. It's so funny. It's like, it's shocking almost. You're like, what's going to happen here? One day, it's all going to be turned upside down. Everything, it's like the whole world's turned upside down. All of these people who are treasuring this age and who are abandoning God and rejecting Him and running headlong into foolishness, the clarity will come. The blinders will be taken off and you'll see, you'll see, and you'll say, hold on just a second, you mean what I've been living for was all foolishness and it'll be too late? And God will make it clear to us and it'll be clear He will vindicate His People on that day, he will grant grant relief to them. He will bring the peace to them that he's promised. They will eternally rest with him. God will be just in the day that he decides to judge the wicked because they've rejected him and his people. This is comforting to us. This is very... It really is comforting that we can rest in God handling that on the last day. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God is going to handle that in the end. Those people are under extreme persecution, extreme difficulty, extreme trials. And God says, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you through it. And in the end, everything's going to be made right. Everything will be made right in the end. And I will bring justice. And those who have afflicted God's people and have rejected God's people, they will face eternal damnation. It's very clear. They will spend eternity separated from God, eternity in hell. God will do so and it will be just for him to do so. Because they have rejected his offer of free grace and salvation that has come. Now, when will this take place? Look, it says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We already found out in 1 Thessalonians that when Jesus returns, he's going to call together his church. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he speaks of this horrible day that the world will not be prepared for. A day of destruction. But we understand here in this text, it's saying Jesus will vindicate his people and he will bring vengeance on those who reject and do not obey the gospel. Now listen, this is something I think is also very confusing. He does not say those who do not believe the gospel. It is true that those who do not believe the gospel will face this day, this coming day, and will face the judgment of God. But there is something interesting to me about they do not obey the gospel. In Romans, Paul says, he speaks of the obedience of the faith. When he talks about, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, about these people, he says they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son. Now catch this real quick. Obedience to the gospel is when we talk about faith, believing God, it embodies obedience. It, did, you, did you hear that? When we're talking about faith, it embodies obedience. If you say, I believe in Jesus, and now I'm going to live as if He does not exist, and that He does not judge sin, you have confused it. You've missed it. When I was growing up, and, 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 and be honest with you, in Baptist circles, they would say, for God so the love of the world, that he whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. And they would say that over and over and over again. And over time, I felt like this is what happened. People said, I believe in Jesus back here. I'm not going to live for Him. I'm not going to serve His church. I'm not going to invest my gifts in the church. I'm not going to do any of that. And I would say to them, you do not understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is repenting of your sins and it's running in faith to Him. And it's repenting of your sins and believing Him. Repenting of your sins believing in Him. And certainly there was a time you did that. But the faith that saves you is the faith that continues to work in you throughout the rest of your life. People can say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but not walk with Him. And I would say, you have the the demon's faith. Demons believe. But demons will be damned. Paul's saying there's an obedience of faith. Obeying the gospel is believing in Jesus and walking with Him. And loving what he loves. And striving after the things that would bring him great glory and honor. Without those things. Without the evidence of a converted. Uh, of conversion. The evidence of conversions like a work of faith and a labor of love and a steadfastness of hope. I, I don't believe that you should be confident that you will not be on the wrong side in the day of judgment. Verses 9 and 10. How long, how long will those who've brought trouble to God's people, who've not obeyed the gospel, how long will they suffer? 
They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and be marveled at among all those who believe because of our testimony uh, to you was believed. But he's saying they will suffer punishment of in, in, in eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. They'll be cut off from him. They will have no hope in that day. They'll, they'll experience the, the, the punishment for their sins and their rebellion. It's the most horrifying picture you could imagine. To be away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. To be separated from God in this the greatest torment possible. To be in the presence of God is blessing. To be outside of the presence of God is a curse. It's been that way from the garden. It continues to the end. And it says in Revelation, we see at the very last chapter, outside of the people of God, separated from the presence of God, are those who rebelled against Him. And they're in that place, where the, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a frightening thing. But notice for God's people here. Jesus will come to be glorified in his saints. To be glorified in his saints. And he will also, he is glorified in them. And they are going to be really honored in, in him. He's going to, uh, how does it say there? I want to look at that one more time. He, he says, to be glorified in saints and be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony was believed. These people who have holded fast to the gospel, they'll experience the glorious thing of being uh, Jesus working in them, transforming them, restoring all things. They'll see all of that. He's going to transform us in a moment. It's a beautiful picture here. The last two verses, Paul prays. Now, that's one of his patterns. Paul will speak something over the people. He will share wonderful truths to them. He'll remind them of their future and the blessing that's coming. And then he'll pray that they'll live in light of that. He says, to this end, we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm out of time, so I'm just going to like hit you with the last couple of things. When he prays this, he says, I pray that you be worthy of the calling. That, that should be your prayer regularly. God, you saved me. Let me live in a, wor a worthy way. If someone's ever given you an honor and you say, I just want to be worthy of that. I don't feel like I deserve it. I want to walk in a worthy way. That's kind of the picture. Sometimes I hear about people in World War II when they were struggling and, and they were fighting alongside soldiers and some of the guys died and they like, we got, we were, we were spared. We don't know why we were spared, but I hope we'll live a life that's worthy of that. It's the same here. We should want to live in a way that is worthy of the calling. And then he says, may the Lord fulfill every thing that you you desire to see done it, it has this idea of them dreaming to be useful for the kingdom to be useful for the glory of god to to bless others and when they're longing for that they're, they're longing to see that happen may he fulfill it 
Paul's saying when someone has a vision of what God has rescued them from and how he saved them, then they're longing and clinging to uh, 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 things that they say, how can I most glorify God? He's saying, may those things be fulfilled. May God be glorified in the life of his people. So the question today for you is, are you growing in faith? Are you increasing in love? Are you living for God in the face of suffering? Are you meditating on the truth that he'll return and rescue us and judge this world? And are you prayerfully asking God to make you walk in a manner worthy of the calling that he's given you? Are you seeking to glorify him with all of your life? I hope so. And we'll pray that we as a church will do so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you to give us a heart for what you have a heart for. Lord, we know this culture is dizzying with all of the things that we could be busy about. We most of all want to be busy about doing the things that would give you the greatest amount of honor. We want to walk worthy of the calling. And we want to live in a way that others would. We want to dream about things that we can do for your kingdom and your glory. That others would come to know you. That they would see the wonderful truths that you have come to save us. Lord, we do not want to waste our lives. And we do not want to get caught up in foolish things that will not, that will not produce the result of giving you maximum glory. Please do that in us. As a church, we beg you to do that. Make us a, a, a faithful people. In Christ's name, amen.